In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We've done a lot of different white papers on the subject of air pollution, particulates, and the like, growing body of research that shows how harmful they are. So it was really exciting to get a chance to sit down with Gretchen Goldman. She is an actual scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. This is her specialty. We had a great conversation about the science and, more important, how the science intersects with the policymaking process, the stuff happening on this front as we speak. Uh, you're going to learn a lot. It's really an uh, urgent, important issue that we don't hear a lot about. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Gretchen Goldman, is the research director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And uh, she is she is here with us to talk about air pollution. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, it's really exciting. So uh, this is like, pe- people talk a lot about climate change these days. It's been kind of a, a very important issue. Uh, but this is sort of like the the older question of, of environment. Yeah, uh, it's one of the original environmental pollution questions. Right. And so like, what does it mean? Like we say like air pollution, like like what is that? Usually when we're talking about air pollution, we're talking about outdoor air pollution. Uh, there's another field that looks specifically at indoor air pollution and, and cooking and uh, off-gassing from products. But um, in the environmental space, we're usually talking about outdoor pollution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is anything that we are breathing in when we are out and about in the world. Uh, so it can come from uh, cars and trucks. It can come from industrial facilities. Uh, or it can occur naturally from t- trees and other natural sources. And and like primarily though, like what what are the of policy concern? Like what what are the main like things that are that are in the air that, that we worry about? The things that we're most worried about when it comes to the ambient air, so the air around us generally, are things like ozone. Uh, this is ozone occurring at ground level, so not the, different than ozone in the ozone layer, and particulate matter, which are tiny airborne particles. So those are the big two that we worry about in terms of their scale and impact on public health. And so, so the particulates, this is like kind of what, loosely speaking, we call smog, right? Like, this, it's just like, it's like... It's like dirt in the air. Yeah, there, it's dirt in the air. So uh, usually, what we when we say smog, we mean ozone, and when we say soot, we mean particulate matter. Ah, soot versus smog. Okay, there you go. So this is I. I but they have they have the same impact <laughs> in that you are worried about it for your health, and it might affect uh, visibility, so mm-hmm, your ability mm-hmm. to see far. If you're looking at a city scraper when you're uh, landing on a plane, and you see that it's a little dirtier in that layer closest to the ground. And so one thing that I, I think is noteworthy is you know if you 
if you walk around the United States compared to, I don't know, when I've been to China um, or compared to even, I, I remember a little bit like Southern California in the 80s, like our air seems like pretty clean compared to, to some of those other things, right? Like we don't have like typically like these like big visible clouds of pollution around. Right. It's largely invisible. And our air quality has gotten much, much better since the enactment of the Clean Air Act. Uh, and people don't see it. You don't notice it when you're walking around. And actually, that's one reason that you'll often hear uh, risks uh, compared to air pollution. So those people will say things like, well, that's only it's about as risky as living in New York City for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, one interpretation of that is that whatever risk you're talking about isn't so bad, or you could interpret that as air pollution is actually much worse <laughs> than you assume. Right. And and that's the, the question, right? I mean, this is where you need to do actual science, right? When there's like an obvious visible problem, it's easy to be like, hey, that's weird. Uh, but when you're talking about, you know, particulates and ozone that you can't see necessarily, but you're breathing them in and like, wh- what does it do? Like, what what do we know about this stuff? So it turns out that air pollution is actually much more harmful than we originally thought. And, uh, you know, when we passed the Clean Air Act, we were very concerned about uh, some about health effects, but also just visibility, right? People Mm -hmm. were mad that they wouldn't be able to see uh, landmarks and national parks and city skylines because of the smog. Uh, And so those were the kinds of issues we were thinking about then. But as we improve the science and understand more and more about how people are exposed and what the health effects they face are, we we it turns out it's actually much, much more harmful than we originally thought. And so on ozone, uh, one thing we're very concerned about is um, respiratory effects. So aggravation in the lungs, um, exasperation of asthma. And on particulate matter, uh, the big problem is around premature death. So people die earlier because of exposure to particulate pollution. It's a much bigger scale than we ever anticipated when we first started studying this. Uh, It actually kills uh, somewhere on the order of 50,000 people a year earlier. That's on par with gun deaths, with uh, traffic accidents. Uh, So it's really quite a large impact. And and so how do we come to to learn that? Like, how, how do we know? There are multiple lines of evidence that (laughs) scientists look at to uh, assess that. So the biggest uh, category where we see the most evidence is uh, what we call large-scale epidemiologic studies. Uh, So these are, uh, we have large populations, so we can look at uh, health data. For example, you can look at everyone who uh, died over a period of a few years in a city or in multiple cities, uh, and you can compare that to what the air pollution was like every day and And uh, you run that correlation and they Mm -hmm. control for all the things that you can think of that that might affect that. So temperature and socioeconomic status and um, anything else that might affect how how the relationship between air pollution and or death uh, to look for any confounding factors. Uh, And ultimately, even when you control for all those things, even when you study different populations in different cities at different levels, you still see this effect that people 
people are dying early as a result of exposure to particulate pollution. And I mean, I, I've been, you know, we've we've talked a, a few times on, on earlier episodes of, of The Weeds about some of these studies that have come out. And I've been surprised by the sort of uh, breadth of effects that some people are, are starting to find. There was one that I think it was looking at like, uh, like diesel school buses and it was showing, you know, not like premature deaths of, of school age children, but like impacts on, on their test scores and, and ability to, to focus in schools from particulates. I, I've seen studies looking at this and links to, to crime. Um, and it's like, it, it's really kind of shocking to me. I mean, just this body of research is piled up at a time when the political debate has not been like hotly focused on, on basic clean air. Right. It's not as sexy of a topic as as others that we tend to focus on in environmental policy, but it actually is having wide-ranging effects. Uh, I think there was a study last week that came out around miscarriages and uh, parts of particulate matter crossing uh, into the placenta during pregnancy. And so I, I think what we're learning is more and more that there's all kinds of effects, but because, you know, it's not something we see every day and, it, you know, these studies are expensive and mm-hmm. uh take a long time. So it's also, um, you know, it takes a little while to to get that evidence and gather it. And what do we know? Sort of, I mean, because these are like large scale statistical studies because you're trying to see, I mean, the, the nature of air pollution is that it affects large groups of people, right? So even small impacts can can have huge harms, right? Sure. But what, what do we know about the sort of like biology of this? Like, like why are these particulates so harmful? Right. So we do those studies as well, of course, in the scientific community, because you want to look at what's actually happening in the world in right. the, the large scale epi studies. Uh, but you need to also look at, you know, what's the mechanism biologically that is making that happen. Uh, so we do that through uh, looking at an animals. So we do it on, on rats and things like that. And we also do uh, controlled human experiments where you can expose people for a short amount of time to something very controlled and and then look at uh, markers and changes mm-hmm. to to ha- their biology uh, in a way that's not harmful in a long-term way. But obviously uh, some ethical limitations on your ability to experiment on, on humans with that. Right, exactly. And we're, we're, not, um, we're not just seeing if we can get people to die early in a lab. Uh, so... <laughs> So we have that. So one factor is that these are particles that are very, very small. And the smaller they are, they get deeper into our lungs. And that causes inflammation. It gets into our bloodstream. And we see it go into other systems of our body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's one way that we're starting to see it's even more harmful than we anticipated because as the science gets better and we're able to look at smaller and smaller particles, uh, it turns out that's that's a big factor in uh, how harmful they are. So this are. is like like any kind of filtering thing, right? Like if you get for your HVAC system, right? It's like, it's like a cheap one can get rid of like really big stuff, right? But it's like harder and harder to stop smaller and smaller things. Right. And right. so like your body has like natural defenses, right? But but tiny particles. Sure. They're much smaller. These are we're talking it's a fraction of the width of a human hair. So it's mm-hmm. not something that's going to get stuck in your your nostril hairs. Right. 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 Like right. And it's called so t- technically this is called PM5. 
So PM 2.5 is the big one. So that means uh, particulate matter less than 2.5 micrometers. Uh, And so so first we just looked at total suspended particles. And then as the science got better, we decided we maybe it was important to look at smaller ones. So we looked at PM 10, so less than Mm -hmm. 10 micrometers. Uh, Now the the big one that we're seeing lots of health impacts from is PM 2.5. And there's actually emerging research that we need to go even smaller to what we're what we call ultrafine particulates. Um, so this is would be PM 0.1. Okay, uh, but that that's more of a emerging area that will right. continue. But like this is basically a, a story about like our ability to actually detect and measure this really really small stuff has improved, and and that's why the like what the science says changes because what we can what we can actually measure has changed. Yeah, and actually with particulate matter, if you look at the graph of it over time, it's very much a you can only manage what you can measure story. Mm-hmm. So you see sort of over the since the Clean Air Act has been enacted, it's been uh, dramatically reduced year to year, and so you see that that big improvement in the mm-hmm. data really easily, which is uh, which is great, but it, it's matched by more science that tells right. us it's still bad. That, that we're not doing adequately. So what, where does this like come from? Like what, what are the main sources of, of these particulates? They're from uh, traffic emissions, so car tailpipes. Uh, they're from industrial sources. Uh, and they're also uh, somewhat a component nat- of natural sources. So mm-hmm. they come off of uh, trees and um, other sources and, and sea salt. But uh, largely it is uh, industrial, at least in, in the U.S. The thing that we're concerned about is uh, tailpipes and industrial sources. Okay, so it's like you're burning stuff and, and you've got smokestacks or, or tailpipes. Right, and, and wood stoves is the other one I'm, I'm forgetting. So Wood stoves. But that would be primarily in the, like, not in the U.S., right? Um, well, if in rural areas, it's a bigger deal. So in okay. mountain valleys where there are people there, there are more. using it for heat. And okay, so, so there's there's more of that happening there. Um, so, so okay, so this is, uh, it, it seems bad. Um, and I think we should take a break and then talk about, like, public policy. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.
I don't know if everybody knows this, but like the the way the Clean Air Act is written, right, is sort of deliberately broad, right, so as to at least incorporate the possibility that like the scientific findings will change and therefore the policy will change, right? Because like you could have had a different framework where they were like, hey, you can't do this one thing. And then new science comes in and now Congress has to pass a new law. But it's not, it's not supposed to work like that, right? Like this updated science is supposed to, I don't quite want to say automatically, but like it's it's supposed to lead to new rules without new acts of Congress. Right, exactly. It was designed in a way uh, with them thinking about the idea that you would have evolving science, you would have evolving understanding of what was harmful, and you'd need to revisit those standards. So in terms of the ambient air pollution standards, it's in the Clean Air Act that you have to revisit that every five years, uh, which is really strong. Not, mm-hmm. not every law, of course, has that. And uh, and the science has kept pace with that in that every five years or so, we have needed to, to reassess, at least on uh, ozone and particulate matter, where we, we have an evolving science. Uh, there's some that we have not uh, updated as regularly because we've uh, it is something seen as urgent, but uh, there's more. So this is things like lead and carbon monoxide. We have not updated with the Mm -hmm. same frequency um, because we've we've addressed a lot of the air pollution concerns around those. Right. But I mean, so I mean, this is like a pretty clever move, I guess, by environmentalists at at the time. Right. Because like they had like public concern about, as we were saying, like, like visible, like, like you, you can't see the skyline anymore, you know, kind of stuff. But they wrote into the the law, right, that like if new harms are discovered, we're going to go after them. Uh, right. Yeah. Which is good. It's, like that's that's like that's that's smart work. Yeah, it was very impressive at the time. I mean, and and now and uh, as a science policy nerd, it's really mm-hmm. great and it's really strong because it separates uh, the science and the policy. And it says that you have to set the standard based on what protects public health and welfare. So you can't consider how much uh, it, when you set the air quality standards, you can't consider how much it costs or uh, other factors. You just have to look at what the science says about the impacts. So that's really powerful and, and not the way a lot of laws are, are written. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, to, to play dumb about it then. So this means like all's well. Uh, the new science has come in. It's showing this stuff is more harmful than we thought it was. So standards are just set more toughly and uh, we're, we're going to take care of everything and, and there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, ideally that I can just <laughs> go home. Uh, um, so that that has been largely how it's worked for mm-hmm. the past four decades that, that, that it's been implemented. And we've seen under both Democratic and, administ- and Republican administrations that uh, they have largely followed the science and tightened the standards as they were deemed appropriate. Uh, this happens with a lot of external science advice. So, um, you know, professors and uh, other air pollution experts that come in and uh, give their opinion about what the standards should be set at, and then the EPA administrator will will decide. Um, and that's worked really well for, for many, many years. Uh, but under the Trump administration, we've seen uh, some more changes. Uh, they've uh, upended a lot of that science-based process that's been followed. Okay, so how how has it how has it worked in the in the in the good old days? Uh, this is this is the weeds. You can you can you can tell us in, in detail. You can say, okay, I want to do what the science says, but like, there's no person named like the science who I can just go ask. Like, so <laughs> how, how how does that work? 
Yeah, it's a really great process. I, I feel it's a really good model for uh, science policy and how you, where you draw the lines between what mm-hmm. what is a scientific decision and what is a policy decision. Uh, so the way it works is that every five years, the Environmental Protection Agency will develop a monstrous document called the Integrated Science Assessment, uh, and that will look at the state of the science on that pollutant and public health and welfare effects. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I say welfare effects, those are things like uh, visibility. Uh, ecological effects, uh, climate effect on building materials. Mm-hmm. So basically, any other reason we might want to control ambient air pollution that's not related to okay, because you might be like corroding the exterior of people's buildings. And sure, right. Other, Which other was historically a problem with, right. with some air pollutants. And uh, so now, mostly we focus on the public health because that tends to be the, the more stringent standard. Sure, a but, two micron particle is sure for, for all the reasons, right? That like it can be very damaging in the bloodstream doesn't have like big macro impacts on a sure. large physical object. Right. Most for the most part. There's right. still some areas where we where we want to tighten it mm-hmm. in different ways. But yeah, so so this big document will have all of the the science. So this is uh so my PhD research was on air pollution exposure mm-hmm. in health models. And so it is cited in this giant science document. There you go. And there there it is. And uh so this they they do this big document. They have uh review that document a advisory committee. So it's called the Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee. Uh and then that committee is it's seven people. They're air pollution and health experts. Um, but because for any one pollutant, you need more people to review all the different kinds of studies there are because mm-hmm. you need you need epidemiologists, toxicologists, uh, monitoring experts. You need um, d- different kinds of clinical study issues. So uh, they will uh, use uh, pollutant review panels to augment the science advisory committee. Uh, so with those two combined, you end up having 20 to 30 air pollution experts that are reviewing any one ambient standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they will meet, they will do uh, a public peer review of the um, science assessment, which uh, is probably as ex- as exciting as you imagine that sure. to be. Sure, it sounds awesome. Uh, but it's actually really neat because uh, peer review in science is often not something you get to see in public, right? It's, uh-huh. it's something, it's someone sitting on their computer, you know, making critiques of somebody else's science. Boring. Yeah, and but they're doing it in, in public. So it's a big discussion. It's a public meeting. They take public comment. Uh, and then EPA takes all of that advice and, and they'll revise the science and they'll ultimately come up with this finalized document that says, you know, this is what we think is everything we know about particulate matter and health and welfare. And then from there, the EPA will develop a, a policy assessment that will go into, well, here's what we think about how people are exposed to uh, that pollutant. Here's what we think the impacts of different setting the standard at different places would be. Uh, and that um, ultimately, and then they'll go through that whole process again. So all the advisors will again come in. Uh, they'll have a public meeting. They'll review that document and they'll get a sense of all the risks and all the policy related questions that they have. Uh, And then that group of advisors will decide what they recommend the standards should be. Uh, So based on their understanding of the science and the policy dimensions, uh, we as scientific experts on the panel, this is what we think you, EPA administrator, should do in order to protect public health and welfare. Uh, And so this is a really great system because when they do that, that is a uh, clear line between science and policy. So you have a recommendation of from the science advisors saying this is where we think uh, the standards 
standard should be. And then the administrator, he has some leeway, he or she, and and you know they can decide like, well, I actually think this is the the standard, and they might differ. Uh, but if they do that, then you we know whether or not they they follow the advice of their top science experts. Um, and so that's been a really great accountability mechanism, both for just public um, observation of the process and and of course for the courts to then uh, look at it. So it's actually a really great uh, policy that has this clear, bright line between the science and the policy decisions, which not all environmental laws have. Okay, so a, a phrase that came up there a lot is the standard. So like, what, what does that mean, right? Like if I have, okay, here's the standard for ozone, here's the standard for particulates. Like what what, what is the standard? It's like how how much you can have in, in the aggregate? Like, what, what, what does it mean? Yeah, exactly. So we would say, uh, so for example, for ozone, it is uh, 70 parts per billion for the primary standard, the health protective standard. Um, and so what that says is that uh, Washington, D.C. region has monitors in various places around uh, the city and around the broader region, uh, and they have to monitor what ozone levels are everywhere. So the administrator will negotiate on the exact math you have to use to determine what your design value is. Uh, So what what the value is that the region gets. So, you know, it depends on sort of the averaging time. Do they want to say you you don't have to take the highest monitor because maybe that was a really bad day and it's mm-hmm. not located in the optimal location? You know, they have all these sort of negotiations. So there's but, a little wiggle room around the measurement. Yeah. So though, and that's something, some of that's the administrator has sort of leeway to decide what that is. And on the implementation side, you know, you can, as a city, try to petition EPA to, to sort of let you have this exceptional event if there was some, you know, big fire or something that affected your your calculations. But in the end, you'll get a value for each metro area or county will get a value that says, um, you know, this is the the value that we are. And if that number exceeds that 70 parts per billion, then that county becomes unattainment in unattainment, uh, which means you're not meeting the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way that uh, that plays out is that that will then kick in a whole bunch of policy things that have to happen. So uh, then uh, they'll have to develop a way to ha- figure out how you're going to uh, decrease your air pollution, uh, what steps are you going to take to um, ensure that you you do meet it in the long term. And this is a whole implementation process that uh, EPA goes through. It works with cities. They try to uh, think of different ways that you can improve your your air pollution levels, uh, decrease your air pollution levels. Um, And so one thing I'd I'd just note about that is that this whole process uh, is hugely important, and it's the reason that air quality in the U.S. is far better than other places, and it's because our uh, air pollution laws have teeth. So when you do not meet that standard, uh, there are consequences for <laughs> states. And it means you you don't get certain funding for uh, building highways and uh, you you cannot do the same sort of uh, building of facilities or, you know, there's a different permitting process for if you have a industrial facility that wants to build more or and there's different control requirements on uh, places in that area. And so because there's all these consequences for not meeting the standard, uh, it is cities and states are very incentivized to try to meet the standard, to mm-hmm. not have to be just subject to all those consequences. And so if you're like in in default, I guess, of the of the the, the standards, it means like you can't like new factories can't open 
really right. or you know or they would yeah. have to meet some incredibly high bar yeah exactly and and you have to do something about your vehicle traffic to yeah yeah to, to to get it down and and this as you say like like this works right i mean this is like one of the paradoxical elements of the politics of this is like i've heard donald trump say many times that like America has the cleanest air in the world. Uh, Mike Pompeo made a big deal about this at, at a recent thing. Um, and, and it's it's something I, I've seen come up from conservatives uh, a lot. Um, and, and I mean, they're not wrong, right? Like American yeah. air quality has improved a lot and it is much cleaner than European air, right? Right. Yeah, it is. And, and that is uh, a valid point. Uh, the point that perhaps they are not making is that that, <laughs> that isn't we don't just check that box and then go back to business as usual. You know, it's like that because we keep up with all those enforcement mechanisms and we make sure that we're aligning with well, the right. science. It's, it, it's not a strange coincidence, right? Sure. Like this process, like this is a, a, an annoyance, I think, to city and state officials. Yeah. Industry doesn't like it. It's hard to comply with these rules, at least harder than they would rather not do it. Right. Um, course, but like right. it works like that's why the air got so much cleaner. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what is what is Trump doing now? Uh, so right now, uh, under the last two years anyway, the Trump administration, their EPA, has taken a lot of changes to that process. Uh, so the first thing they did about a year ago, uh, one of the first things was uh, they killed that pollutant review panel for mm-hmm. a particular matter. So this was a group of 20 experts uh, that were all set to do that science review of the uh, particulate matter science and policy documents, uh, and they just said, uh, no, thank you. We don't need you. We're just going to cut it out. Uh, so the first they did that, and then um, they also abbreviated the process. They said we're going to sort of cut down on the number of documents, which eliminates some of that peer review. At that, by default, then eliminates some of the public comments that would have been collected during that time. Uh, and then uh, they replaced some of the people on the the remaining committee. So this is uh, the seven-person committee. They then proceeded through the process. Uh, and that seven-person committee, as they got into it, uh, decided that they were not adequate to review those documents because they're only seven people. Mm-hmm. And we're talking uh, a huge amount of uh, breadth and uh, diversity of scientific topics that need to be reviewed. And so, you know, any seven people would not be able to do that. And the seven people that uh, the Trump administration chose are not the top experts in the field uh, on that. So uh, that sort of put them in this weird position because they're still being expected to go through this process, even though they've already said, well, we're actually not, uh, we don't have the expertise needed to do this. Uh, but uh, the Trump administration's just sort of continued them on that path and not listened. And uh, so now they, they have sort of a consultant pool that they've, they're doing to uh, save face on this because they have this weird situation where uh-huh. the committee has said they are unqualified and uh, they need to do something in response. So they have this uh, pool of consultants that they have access to that they can, in writing, sort of ask these other their experts' questions and get responses back. Uh, but that's a, a far cry from the yeah. public open peer review of 30 experts that would have happened if they had not disbanded. And what's the, what's the, what's the point here? Like, why, why are they doing that? I mean, your guess is as good as mine why the Trump administration does anything. But uh, so, I mean, one 
uh, one possibility is that they do not want to set a science-based standard mm-hmm. uh, because they know that uh, doing so, uh, as you said, increases is is an inconvenience to cities and states. Uh, but the other big reason to worry about particulate matter is because of all the other environmental rules that particulate matter affects. Let's take a break, and then let's talk about those other rules. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so it, it seemed like we were about to get into a complicated new subject because um, <laughs> used to because we've been talking about okay, how do you set the ozone standard? How do you set the particulate standard? Um, but you said there's a lot of other environmental rules that are impacted by these standards. So how does that work? Right. So particulate matter, it's most of the country meets the current particulate matter standard. So if you look at the map of, of who's not in attainment of that standard, it's uh, a lot of counties in California, uh, Pittsburgh, and a few others. So it's, it's not a huge uh, political... You, you, it's not obvious why a, an administration mm-hmm. that wants to politicize a process would focus on particulate matter. It actually doesn't affect most industries in most places. Uh, but the reason that they do care about it is because uh, particulate matter science has a big impact on uh, other environmental regulations and the ability of us of our country to set environmental standards. Because the particulates themselves are everywhere, right? I mean, even if the noncompliance is like sort of rare, right? The particulates are present every place. Yeah, they're all over the country. And uh, so, so I mean, one reason is we, we the, the standard could get strengthened. It's seeming mm-hmm. that the scientific, uh, our scientific understanding of it is that it probably needs to be tightened at this point. Uh, so it could change the map. But beyond that, in uh, all environmental regulations and uh, most regulations, we have to look at the costs and benefits of of issuing that regulation. Uh, and one thing that really drives the benefits of regulations in this country is the relationship between particulate matter and death. So avoiding those early deaths from particulate matter uh, saves a lot of money. And mm-hmm. that means that most environmental regulations and, and most regulations in general that, that touch this issue will have benefits that outweigh the costs. And that's very inconvenient if you're someone who wants to roll back environmental regulation. Right. So if, if people don't know, right, there's a there's an office, uh, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. Uh, it's in the uh, Office of Management and Budget, which is in the White House. And they do a, like, ruling, basically, on any agency's 
wants to propose rules or 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 roll them back, right? Like whatever happens, you come in and you have to like show some math, right? That's like, why is this a good idea? And you tally up costs and you tally up benefits. And and by design, that benefit cost review is meant to be like holistic. Uh, because the idea, I mean, I this was originally, I, I think was meant to be a sort of an anti-regulatory concept, right? That you could say, oh, hey, this new idea, it's going to like save four people from some problem. But then you come in and be like, oh, no, but the costs are so high, right? Or it will have unintended consequences, right? Because it's like, if we make this change and make something so expensive that people have to use an inferior alternative, you know, they'll, they'll die, whatever. But it means that you can bring these particulate deaths in to like any conversation, as a benefit, right? So if you increase the fuel efficiency standard on cars, right, then there's less particulates, fewer early deaths, and that's a huge benefit. Right. It works on on all environmental regulations that that touch emissions or have some effect on the particulate matter. Uh, so I mean, you you know, we could you could have do a whole separate podcast on cost benefit and whether that's a good way to make decisions. But uh, given that we live in that world, it, it does uh, it is a big driver of right. what goes on. I mean, I think the important thing for you know viewers at home is like that is how it works. Like whether it should work that way or not. Right. It's like yeah. winning the cost benefit math is like an important part of the policymaking process. Yeah. Yeah. And it really and, and that's why it really matters exactly what you do in that math and what assumptions you make about what happens at uh, especially at low levels of particulate matter. Do you assume that uh, people are still dying even below the standard? And, and so when we started making air pollution laws, uh, we did not necessarily assume that there would be uh, continued harm from air pollution even at low levels. So there was sort of a bigger thought that there might be a threshold. So there might be mm-hmm. a, a level below which it's fine, it's safe, everyone can be exposed to it. Uh, but the more that we look at particulate matter and ozone, we're not seeing that threshold. So it seems like it is still harmful, even if you even if you get below the standard, uh, we still see some of those those health effects. Uh, and so that's why it and it really kind of matters what assumption you make. And that's right. one thing we're seeing this administration uh, try to do is, is they've been sort of proposing, well, what if we just said, you know, below the standard, uh, there is no health effects and no one dies early and, right. and that and that, of course, changes the numbers that you would get. Uh, so now we're seeing that it's proving problematic for them and trying Trying to roll back a lot of environmental regulations because uh, because of this math, and so uh, you know another example is the the mercury rule. So the mercury and mm-hmm. air toxics rule was a Obama era environmental rule, uh, and it was designed to target mercury and uh, air toxics, which are another category of air pollution uh, that's emitted from coal fired and oil fired mm-hmm. power plants, uh, and. Um, that's sort of the target of the regulation, but uh, it, 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 again, has lots of benefits in reducing particulate matter. And so those were in the calculations. Uh, and so now in them, in the Trump administration trying to roll back that, you, you see them start to try to fiddle with that underpinning because that, that math is so problematic for and them. So, and so this, this mercury rule, I mean, this was a, a Obama sort of classic, right, uh, regulatory fight because, so it's about mercury, like formally, right? And and mercury is very harmful in in a lot of ways, right? And and one way like a normal person hears about this a lot is like fish, 
right, have mercury in it. Uh, but the ocean is like a global thing, right? And so it was very hard for the United States to like single-handedly impact like what's going on out there. Um, and of course, with climate, it's the same thing, right? It's like it's a whole global problem and you're only looking at a national uh, uh, issue, right? So when you when you try to do in, in the way they do cost-benefit math, when you try to look at, at climate, it's like, it's sort of hard because the benefits of reducing emissions accrue to like all kinds of billions of foreigners, uh, stuff like that. Um, but when you look at the particulates impact, right, it's much more localized. And so you can you can you can drive a lot of benefits sort of through that channel. And I mean, I remember I, I first heard of this whole topic in an Economist article, which was like, oh, like, this is really shady. Like, Obama's putting in all these rules to, like, have less coal. Um, and they have all these benefits uh, that are really about, like, people not dying of, of cardiac and respiratory ailments. And, you know, I read it. I was like, well, that, that, sounds, that sounds good to me. Uh, you, you don't want people to die, right? Uh, but, but, I mean, it's, a, it's like a climate policy political controversy, right, that's being fought out through these particulates channels. Yeah, it, it creates a weird situation where we're we're very incentivized to try to mess with the math on, on these mm -hmm. things because it matters so much, even though... And, and um, you know, there's lots of other benefits to the mercury rule and other uh -huh. rules. Uh, but because, uh, because particulate matter is linked to death and because we spend a lot of uh, time studying it. The science is pretty well established. And so it just, for a variety of reasons, it's an easier thing for us to put into the cost-benefit analysis than other things are. So that affects how we, that, that's sort of one reason it sort of ends up being driven by, right. by that, even though it's, you know, it's not the only benefit. It's not the only thing. It just but, is but, very quantifiable. But, but it scores well. Also that. Yeah. Right. So it's just like, it's become this like powerful tool. Right. In the arsenal, like if you want to make the case for stricter rules on like all kinds of fronts to to focus on the particulates, which right. which at least in the established process, like you 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 get a lot out of. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think legitimately, I mean, I shouldn't, you know, th this was like my original <laughs> uh, concern about the, the economy circle. Like, it's true that this is kind of like one neat trick to make your air pollution rules pass cost-benefit analysis. Uh, but also, like, as far as we can tell, this is because particulate emissions, like, are actually incredibly harmful. Right. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, you know, yeah, right. It's, it's based on the science and that's, that's what we're finding. And, and so, I mean, that's part of the reason, right, that there's so much focus on this, this wonky ambient air pollution process, because it, it really matters what these experts uh, come to. Uh, we actually got a um, internal email from, uh, from the EPA where someone um, asked a question from the Heartland Institute, and they said, uh, are you going to dismiss this panel of experts before they rubber stamp science that will make it hard to repeal the Clean Power Plan? Mm -hmm. and, and they just said it in one sentence like that. And uh, so, I mean, I think it, it's sort of people are thinking, you know, it really matters what what we do on this because uh, it's going to affect all, all these other environmental so, policies. So why, why does that make it hard to repeal the Clean Power Plan? Like, like what, what becomes hard about it? Uh, it just becomes harder for them to claim that uh, they're not increasing costs because uh, so it, it's not in most cases it's not legally required at least on environmental rules that that the benefits outweigh the costs. So, mm -hmm. but it's uh, in terms of 
how they explain what they're doing and why. So if if you are a Trump administration official and you would like to repeal the clean power plan, but when you do this math that looks like, oh, it's going to cost the U.S. economy this astronomical number um, because we are getting rid of these benefits that would have mm-hmm. happened if we had kept the rule in place, uh, that, that's hard to justify to your your base and your your supporters. So I think they, I think they're thinking it. It just makes it challenging to communicate, and it's hard to sort of justify doing right. that. They have I to mean, answer a lot of questions. Because we, we, I mean, we've seen this already, right? I mean, I've seen you know headlines in the newspaper. It's like a oh, Trump rule would cause you know eighty thousand premature deaths, and like that's a that's a bad look, yeah, politically. Exactly. Uh, but I mean, of course, it happens whether they change the scientific assessment. Or not, right? I mean, it's you know, I pe- pe- people we we love political games in in Washington, but you can't you can't really make it make it go away. Yeah, no, and it's uh, yeah, it, it would be they wouldn't be able to otherwise challenge that. But so then uh, another front of this, right, is that they've tried to to argue that like some of the kinds of epidemiological studies that you talked about shouldn't be acceptable as scientific evidence. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So because uh, so because the Clean Air Act is so clear about you have to set the standard based on the science, the science is the only arena they really have to fight in because mm-hmm. you can't argue about these economic impacts because that's not they're not going to set the standard based on that legally. And so uh, as a result, the only thing that's left is to sort of find ways to uh, cut holes in the science or, or poke holes in the the credibility of it. And they they are starting to question the epidemiology epidemiology that goes into um, the, the standard setting. So uh, on for particulate matter, we're seeing more and more these new big epi studies, so big uh, large-scale studies across multiple cities that see that find particulate matter impacts even at lower levels. Um, and we've seen this in, in different cities across the U.S. We've seen it in Canadian studies. We've seen it, you know, in all kinds of different study populations. And so it's, it's very clear that that's what's happening. Uh, but the person that they have put in charge of the the chair of the Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee, his name is uh, Tony Cox, uh, and he's uh, a scientist who, who doesn't really buy this epidemiology thing. And uh, what he uh, thinks you need to base decisions on is not those large-scale studies, but to instead only focus on studies that uh, demonstrate exactly what would happen if you changed the standards? So these are sometimes called accountability studies, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, basically these are these are times where you get a, a natural experiment. So right. something like uh, you know often w- one example frequently is Olympics studies. So mm-hmm. uh, when a city is hosting the Olympics, uh, that will fundamentally change the air quality landscape there because they'll they'll shut down factories that are emitting anything. And we saw this in, in Beijing in 2008, and uh, even in in Atlanta in uh, 1996, and uh, and so those are, are really great uh, times to study this these issues because scientists have this uh, same study population, mm-hmm. but in, under very different air pollution uh, environment. Uh, so that's really useful for sort of studying what what happens and whether or not you see health effect changes as a result of those uh, air quality changes. And so there's a couple studies like that of things where you know it's the same population and a factory shuts down, or we have 
a temporary shutdown, uh, and that allows you to sort of try to observe. Uh, and so those are really great. They're really useful to see that. But because it's so rare that you get those events mm -hmm. and because you're not controlling uh, what else happens during that time. So if, you know, if there just happened to be better me meteorology or other factors that affect uh, people's health, um, then, you know, it's it's sort of hard to use those as the sole uh, factor going into where to set the standard. I mean, this is like, you know, when you're studying humans, right? It's like the problem is you can't, you can't just experiment on them like willy-nilly, right? Right, and this and, is the whole problem with environmental health, right? This right. is the challenge. You, you're, you're only, you, you have to use environmental observational data because you can't, you know, design studies that right. intentionally expose people to and harmful so, and, so then you, you get a tension, right, between like the highest quality of evidence tends to come from rare situations, right? And it's better, like, it's better to have more evidence rather than less. You don't want to, like, make sweeping conclusions from, like, one week in Atlanta one time. Right, yes. um, But also that one week in Atlanta one time may be your best study that, that you have. But so the at least the way they've been doing it, right, is you try to take a look at the breadth of the evidence with some weight given to both, like, you know, like like the nature of the study versus the quantity of things you were able to look at versus saying, okay, we're only going to look at the sort of highest quality natural experiments, which leaves us with almost nothing to even look at. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the the benefit of the big epi studies is that there's just a lot of statistical power, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, of course, uncertainty. You don't know exactly what every person in those studies is breathing. Mm -hmm. But if you have that many people and you control for all those factors and the fact that you still see an effect uh, means a lot. That's really powerful evidence that there's something going on there. And uh, if you have that and you also have... Uh, information about the biological mechanisms. Uh, you also have some controlled human study evidence that uh, it has an effect in humans. Uh, if you put that all together, then you are pretty confident that there, there continues to be a health effect observed. Uh, and so EPA uses this framework, the weight of the evidence framework, to look at, to make those kinds of decisions. Uh, and this is all to say why they need that panel of mm -hmm. experts, because we need people in all those different areas to say, well, this is the evidence that, that I find compelling uh, in my area. These are the uncertainties. You know, these are the challenges that we're, we're working through. So that ultimately gets them to a place where they can look at that huge body of evidence and, and make the call. And because particularly if we're interested in the impacts of like variation in low levels of exposure, you need a lot of statistical power to, to find anything, right? Yeah, because not every study is going to be below at occurring at certain levels. You need to look at what's happening at at uh, lower levels specifically, uh, and that's also why you need the large scale epi studies because mm -hmm. you know the levels that we're now at, looking at the policy relevant levels, uh, are are pretty far below, right? To 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 see if a rat got cancer if he was exposed to that level uh, would take a, a long time and a lot of rats. Sure, right? it's not as easy to get there. That would be very expensive. Um, but if we can get uh, a sense of what's happening in the actual population through these large-scale studies, then we can have a better idea. So so what what should we be doing in this field, uh, if, if, if not what, what Trump is doing? 
We should be allowing the experts to review the science. We should be insisting that the administration makes a science-based decision. Uh, so the panel that was dismissed uh, actually reconvened uh, last week and uh, came together to do the review despite being dismissed by EPA. They were hosted by the Union of Concerned Scientists, where I am. And uh, and so they basically did the job, even though the Trump administration mm-hmm. dismissed them. They're concerned scientists. Uh, they are. They are concerned scientists. And uh, so they they volunteered their time. We didn't pay them to do that. And so uh, that's um, they're going to write a letter to the administrator that's going to say this is where we should set the standard. Um, so the uh, administrator Wheeler, uh, EPA administrator Andrew Wheeler, should listen to them. He should uh, follow the advice of independent science experts in setting the standard. Uh, and, you know, we should make sure he follows that science-based process and not uh, cut it short because he wants to get things done by 2020. And that would likely mean tighter rules on the, I mean, on the the map stuff as well yeah, as yeah. Uh, in these additional regulatory processes. Right. It would probably it's looking like the science is going to show you should you should tighten it if you want to protect public health, uh, which will mean more places will be in on attainment, but that gives us the opportunity to ensure people have cleaner air in the long run. That's good. And so and so we we mentioned the mercury rule, the clean power plan. Um the clean power plan was like that was like the the, the Obama's second term like big climate review of um Power plants, right. right? What other are the sort of like like big rules that are that are in the mix uh, touched by this? Those are most of the big ones. Uh, another one that's important that will change a lot of this is the strengthening transparency in regulatory science. Uh, this is a proposed rule that the Trump administration has um, offered, and it would change the kinds of science that EPA can use in decision making. Uh, so this is another way that they're monkeying with the science because mm-hmm. uh, under this rule, you'd have to make public all of the underlying data that feeds into um, an EPA decision. Decision. Uh, so this seems very intuitively good, right? You'd, you'd want transparency. That sounds great. Yeah, data is good. Yeah, that sounds great, right? But but the problem is that uh, as we've been discussing, a lot of EPA decisions are based on health data and industry data and proprietary data in other ways. Uh, and so it, what this rule would then in effect do is is say that EPA can't use any of those studies. Uh, so all of these epidemiology studies that we're talking about, uh, it's likely the administration wouldn't be able to use those in decisions uh, around air pollution standards. Uh, And of course, if you could not use any health data to set a health-based air pollution standard, uh, you would not be able to set a a science-based standard. Wait, I don't understand that, though. Maybe I'm dumb. Why can't I use health evidence under this new transparency rule? Because you would have to make it public in order to use it. And uh, under HIPAA, under um, to protect uh, confidentiality of patients, you cannot disclose health data. So if I'm a university scientist doing research, Research. I have to take ethics training. I have to uh, sign um, institutional review board paperwork mm-hmm. uh, to say that I am not going to release this health data that is sensitive. Uh, and that is an important uh, rule we have in place. There's reasons uh, historically that there were unethical behaviors uh, in the scientific community. And so we have all these rules now to ensure that we protect okay, health so, data. But so, so, so by transparency, they mean like public on the uh, on the level that would violate those kind of rules, not just like not just like here's my 
here's my stats and and you can check the math or something. Yeah. So they've iterated on it. And so, you know, we'll see what what they sort of end up doing with it in the final rule. But uh, there's been questions about whether it would require disclosing Uh health data. And there was a provision about, uh, well, the administrator can uh, decide whether or not something should be disclosed. So Mm -hmm. it seemed like it was sort of they could decide whether or not that would matter. And in one version, they wrote out, they wrote, in an exception where uh, you would have to disclose it to only a small set of people. But, you know, that still raises challenges because it's a lot of this is historical data. So if if I did a study 30 years ago and, uh, you know, I don't really have access to asking people whether I can right. disclose that now. Uh, so there was a lot of unanswered questions. It wasn't uh, thought out. And, um, and, you know, it doesn't really solve a problem. I mean, there's uh, a lot of health data that uh, is used in scientific studies, but even in a peer review scientific journal context, uh, people don't need access to the raw data that went into a sure. study to be able to assess it. I mean, it's public merit. health research, right? I mean, like that's the, the topic. Yeah, exactly. So what so else you, are you going to use? Right. But you just see, you know, if I know your methods, I know your results data, because mm. that would be in the published. That, that's sufficient for me to judge the scientific merit of your study. And, and so the, the basic story is they want to just narrow the scope of evidence that can that can be brought to bear uh, because there's a there's a concern that the evidence has been indicating that this is a more serious health risk. Yeah, it's than, very inconvenient evidence if you don't want to do something about it. Right. And it's I mean, like, it's alarming to me personally. I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I, I've got a four year old and, uh, you know, people uh, do you have kids? Yeah, I have two kids. Yes, there you go. Um, so, you know, like parents are always like, ah, oh, toxins, you know, like people are worried about all kinds of stuff. And it's like, it's like un- alarming to me. It's like, because I can't do anything about sure. ambient air pollution, you know, you can <laughs> yeah. like, you can like get different like plastic jars or something inside your house, right? But like, it's like actually quite scary. I mean, it's... Yeah. And kids are sort of uniquely vulnerable because they breathe more and their breathing zones are closer to tailpipes of cars. And so in the urban environment, it is... I also am concerned about it. My kid loves the bus, the metro bus. So like we ride it all the time. But I I think about the fact that if we're sitting in traffic, then he's just breathing right in and loving it. And then, you know, I try to then remind myself that it's like, well, okay, actually, I was breathing in more of this than than he is right but it's like it's still like it's 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 like it's really it's really bad um it's, it's, yeah. it's to me um and we should we should actually do something about it uh but i guess uh, it's it would be inconvenient to uh industry and i don't know what bus manufacturers uh car companies uh to to take the new evidence seriously so if you have the option of just excluding it uh that's that's like a winner yeah right and that's that seems to be the strategy that's sad. That's sad. Okay. Uh, before I let you go, um, what, this is a big topic. Uh, what, what, what did I miss? What, what should I have asked you about? So uh, one thing that ambient air pollution laws in the U.S. do not do a good job is protecting environmental justice communities. So these are communities that are living next to the fence line of an uh, industrial uh, facility or, or multiple. So we often have uh, pockets where there's lots of uh, facilities and uh, there'll be a, a residential community 
right in the middle. Uh, and uh, this happens everywhere. One one sort of notable example is uh, Houston, Texas, because they do not have zoning laws. So mm -hmm. there's uh, communities that are often right next to facilities. Uh, but this is uh, one thing that um, about the ambient air pollution standards and the reason they're important is because the more that you can uh, make sure that they are protecting the bro broader public, that will have a bigger impact on communities that are right there because uh, they are relying on facilities to be subject to different air pollution laws to minimize their exposure because uh, they're getting it from a whole bunch of facilities right there. Uh, and so that's not sufficient. So even if we all met the standard, uh, they would still have this disproportionate exposure to air pollution. And uh, and there's evidence that we should be doing a lot more to protect those communities because uh, right now our monitors don't protect them as well because we sort of intentionally want to try to get at what is the ambient concentrations. So we're actually specifically not trying to look at exposure in hot spots and places where there's lots of air pollution because we want to see, you know, what's the broader DC region, what is the, the air pollution level like. Uh, and so then by design, we're sort of not uh, concerned with the exposure of, of certain pockets that are getting more air Pollution. Right. So this is like if you live like right by the GW Bridge toll plaza in Fort Lee, New Jersey, you are getting like a lot more tailpipe emissions yeah, exactly. than the average person in the greater New York area. And the, and the law, as currently written, doesn't specifically like address those kinds of right. concerns, right? And so it's, and it's like particularly like it's low-income people who typically are going to end up living in those in those kind of hotspots. Yeah, exactly. And and it also makes uh, the health studies a, a little harder, too, because there is often that confounding factor of uh, socioeconomic status. And uh, and so it makes it harder to sort of show that health effects are happening there, even though we we know um, in terms of the biological mechanisms that mm -hmm. uh, uh, with almost certainty there there is disproportionate health impacts for people that are living in uh, these places. Right, because you would want to ask, like, well, what if we had a bunch of really rich people living right next to the heavily polluting factory? But like, but like that doesn't happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so 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 you don't have that same sort of comparison. And um, so, so with all of these things that the administration's doing, they're all going to have these disproportionate impacts on places that are uh, targeted by a whole bunch of different uh, pollution sources. Uh, and so when you walk back a standard, if they were to weaken the particulate matter standard or or any of these rules that we're talking about, you know, it might not have as big of an impact on what you and I are breathing. But if you are in a community that is very uh, close to facilities, you know, a change in any sort of weakening of a standard could have a big impact on in your exposure. That. Um, all right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Gretchen Goldman, Union of Concerned Scientists. And thanks, as always, uh, to our sponsors. Thanks to the listeners uh, at home. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. 
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.